We are honored today to welcome Dr. Susie Allard, Associate Dean for Research at the University of Tennessee College for Communication and Information. Her research interests focus on how scientists and engineers use and communicate information with a focus on projects related to science data. Her research and teaching focus includes digital libraries. Previously, Dr. Allard provided consulting services to the television and motion picture industries and also served as editor-in-chief for an outdoors periodical. Her research has been presented at conferences in Europe and Asia, and her work published in several prestigious journals. She will discuss today the book Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think. Dr. Allen. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming and sandwiching this into your day. I really, really appreciate that. This is a talk that you would expect to see slides because it's about technology. But I think the most important part of this is to think about how big data is dealing with us as people. And therefore, I really wanted to keep this on an interpersonal level of us talking. It's a great book. It's a big data book, but it's a very, very light book, which I'm going to just mention because it's easy to put in your, in your bag and take anywhere to read. And that's important because I know not everyone who came today has read the book, but I'm hoping that by the time we're done today, you'll be interested in going to the library and checking out a copy or picking up a copy of your own because it is a very, very good book, and we can only scratch the surface of the kinds of things that are covered in it. It is a 2013 imprint, which means in the data world, it's already getting old. However, what it's teaching us and telling us and sharing with us is very important. The authors, Victor Meyer Schomberger, is a professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is um, highly regarded. And to brag on UT for just a moment, we have had several of our doctoral students go and be doctoral fellows there over the summer at the Oxford Internet Institute. So that's um, a wonderful thing as well. And uh, Kenneth Kukier, who is the data editor for The Economist. So as you would expect, this is both well-researched and well-written. It tells an amazing story uh, in narrative form, but it has a huge amount of references at the end to where you can kind of read more and get deeper if you choose to. Because of our proximity to many big data practitioners, both of the government type, or now uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory and um, Y12 National Security Complex, as well as many businesses around here, health systems and other kinds of marketing businesses that we have in this area, I think this is a really important topic from that perspective. I think it's also very important in perspective from all of us. How many of you use some sort of social networking, Facebook or um, Twitter or any of those, Each of these has a place where they're collecting data from us. And these are being aggregated in a way that people are learning about us and what we do. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but that's why this book is pertinent to anybody in the room, regardless of whether they're in business or working in the government or anything else. It has a very personal perspective as well. It's also a great book because it introduces concepts and builds an understanding around a term that sounds so simple, big data, seven letters. But what exactly does that mean? And um, I want to start by just giving a definition it gives, which I think is a great definition for use even outside the book. 
Big data refers to things one can do at a large scale that cannot be done at a smaller one to extract new insights or create new forms of value in ways that change markets, organizations, the relationships between citizens and governments, and more. And that is why it's such an important part. Think of the scope it's talking about here in terms of the reach that we are dealing with and thinking about the scale. And I'll talk a little bit more about each piece of that. Also, one of the things I think is a value of the book itself, if you were to choose to read it, it's a fantastic narrative because it talks about the foundations of where big data may have begun historically, going back into the 1800s. And you might not normally think about that. But, for example, shipping lanes, it you know, gives an excellent little story about um, how sea captains just navigated what they were comfortable with and didn't really follow all the shipping lanes until there was one naval officer who had the unfortunate problem of being run over by a buckboard and therefore can no longer be on a ship because he was, um, his leg was damaged so severely that he could no longer be on a ship. And he was put in an office, a musty old office with lots of logbooks, and he started thinking, from my time on a ship, what can I learn from these logbooks? And he, he amassed over one million data points, and he created the first charts to show where the shipping lanes were and where the natural ocean lanes would be. Now, I'm not an oceanographer, so I'm not good at words on that, but it's an amazing story to think that at that point, managing that many data points led to something. So really, what we're living in now isn't something that's changed how people want to be gathering data. What's happened now is that we have instrumentation, we have technology that can handle more data than we've ever had before. When we, when we have this kind of data, it fundamentally changes how we understand the world. It's characterized by the fact that now, with data, we can say what, not why. We aren't really looking at why things are happening. The focus on causality has changed to now understanding what's happening more than what, why it's happening, and that data leads us to that. So I'm going to um, go through all these points, but I actually am starting with a point that's at the end of the book because I think it is something that's really, really important. We live near what we refer to as the atomic city with Oak Ridge, and there's a lot of people who talk about how Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer went back over time and said, maybe I shouldn't have done pure science because look what I created, and, and had some doubts about that later. And I think when we're going to talk about this powerful world of big data, we might want to keep that in mind. And there's one line, it's kind of buried in the back of one of the chapters, and the authors say, our task is to appreciate the hazards of this powerful technology, support its development, and seize its rewards. And in that section, he also talks about that we need to think about what will happen with this technology and contain it and control it as well. So where I'm going to kind of start is think about how the world has changed. They give a statistic that I'll use that in 2000, only about 25% of information was digital and by 2007, 93% of data was digital. And that has actually gone up. Um, not only is more of the data digital, but we are creating more data every day. Have you ever been to YouTube? Every, every recording on there is digital. Um, and at this point, there would not be enough time in one lifetime to view all the recordings that are on there as of today. And of course, that's only getting more so. As we all become content creators, that we as people can put things up and create information that others can see, the digital content is growing exponentially. And that creates what the author refers to as data exhaust. 
And data exhaust is the trail we leave with our data. We charge something on our charge card. We go to a particular filling station. Uh, we write something on our Facebook or we write um, on change.org. And that gets tracked, can be tracked back to us. Now, I'm going to preface this to say please don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the, and I don't mean to, to make everybody concerned in that way because I personally love and value big data and what it can tell us. But I also recognize that we want to be aware of its challenges and what that leads us to. So let's start first with what is big data. When we used to think about doing research, we used to think about sampling. We used to think about, okay, there's all these people in the room, and I'm going to talk to the people at this table and that table, and they'll represent everybody in this room because I only have time to talk to those folks, and we'll extrapolate that that will be a good sample. Big data tells us that we would collect from everybody in the room. N no longer equals <clears throat> five. N equals however many we are in here. N equals all. And that this is a fundamental change in mindset and how we are looking at things because no longer are we constricted by just a certain data set that we can collect and look at, but we can look at everything. This is great. It tells us a lot. It means, yeah, go ahead. So, so that presumes that... Do you want to use it so it's recorded? Do you mind? Sure. Thank you. Big data, the, that digital data is capturing all, all input. But I would imagine that there are big sectors of a population that don't participate in digital data in many cases. Excellent point. That's what we call lossy. First off, there's a lot of data, information that we don't have. It's lossy. We don't get it. Big data is messy. That's the second chapter. It's titled Messy, just for those kinds of reasons. Now, if we think about that, we do have a problem regarding digital divide, people who don't have access, but they are still recorded in some ways. If you go shopping at Kroger's or any other place that has a, a club for you to discounts or whatever, you don't have to be participating as being on your cell phone or on a computer, but you are still being recorded what you're buying. Um, so there is a piece of the hole that's closed. But you're completely right. There are also, and that's kind of the flip side, the bad side, there may be a lack of representation. And one of the things we really have to guard against with big data, which I think is huge, We'll talk about the power of big data, but we have to not be seduced into believing it can answer every question we've ever had. And that that's the only way to look at the world. Because just as you, as you suggest, we will miss holes. Um, so great question. And thank you for bringing it as you go. One of the things we have is increased processing power. Memory is cheaper than ever. What we can have on a watch it used to have to be on a computer on your desk that was giant. Um, you know, it's just amazing the amount of memory, and memory is very, very cheap. Processing power, we can hook things together. We have one of the fastest computers in the world just over the hill, so we can handle more data. There is more data to handle. We also are writing better algorithms than we have in the past because of the processing power allows us to look at things in connectivity between ideas and um, between pieces of data in a way we haven't been able to do in the past. And what this has led to is it's led to um, 
bigger data sets, and less interest in exact instrumentation. Now, I work in a scientific world, and we're still very, very concerned with exactitude of each piece of data. But in other places, you can have less exactitude. And so one of the examples of that would be the flu uh, pandemics. NIH follows the flu by getting reports and compiling and seeing where it went. What Google did is it started to look at could they predict where the flu is much closer to real time. And so they looked at what people were Googling, and then they looked in the past, they looked at their old records of what people had Googled, and then they went and looked at where the reports of the pandemic was, and they correlated, and they found like 45 terms that kind of presaged where the pandemic was going to emerge. So in the next flu epidemic, it did very, very um, well at predicting where the flu was breaking out. That wasn't an exact science. It wasn't scientific by the way that we understand scientific, but it did a really good job of helping predict something that we didn't know in the past. Now, in the most recent flu epidemic, its ability to predict has gone down, and they were looking at why, and some of that has to do with the health messages that were going out to the public. We're having people search on certain terms that they had used in the past only when the flu got to them, and now because they were doing outreach on the flu, people were searching on those terms before the flu actually arrived. So it's an imperfect world to use big data, but it has um, some interesting and powerful components. One of the... um, The key messages when you think about big data and the messiness of it is one of the foremost authorities on database design, Pat Helen, said, if you have too much data, then good enough is good enough. And it's changing how we design databases and how we uh, interrogate databases and how we analyze what we get from it. And in the past, databases had, we always strove for closer to perfection. I wouldn't say perfection, but, you know, exactitude. And now with big data, good enough is good enough. Um, It's a huge change. It's a fundamental switch in how we think about dealing with information. Another huge switch is moving from causality to correlation. Causality is I go to the light switch, I hit the switch, the light goes off, this caused that. Correlation would be the light is going out, can I figure out what it is that's making it happen. It appears that it's the light switch, but maybe it's not. Maybe the light switch is going to something else that's turning off the light. Uh, And it's a huge difference because in, in moving from searching for causality to living with correlation, and big data is all about correlation versus causality, we are moving from what has always been the standard for the scientific model of hypothesis and proving or disproving a hypothesis, and instead we're moving to predictive models. This is such a fundamental switch in how we understand the world. Let me read a a moment here for that kind of points this out really well. We say that humans see the world through causalities. We're referring to two fundamental ways humans explain and understand the world, through quick, illusory causality and via slow, methodical, causal experiments. And the thing is, with big data, experiments are not part of how we understand the world. Experimentation goes away. Now, by doing experiments, there's always been an issue with experiments because you may not have external to to control the variables sufficiently to really say causality exists. You may not have what you call external uh, validity, which means that it may not really fit with what the world looks like. 
Moving into models of prediction, you have extreme environmental validity because now you're dealing only with the world as it's actually happening. And it's a huge, huge difference in how we think. This does kind of start to lead to questions about privacy and personal privacy and invasion. If people are collecting all this information about the flu, for example, can, can you track this exhaust, the data exhaust back to an individual person? And currently, data providers are saying that they're anonymizing things to a large degree, but that doesn't always happen. Target, for example, started looking at when people were pregnant, could they predict where they were, what they were buying and what stage of pregnancy they were in, and then they would send coupons and best wishes and all kinds of things to increase sales. The authors talk about a particular situation that happened in Minnesota where a man came into Target, grabbed the manager, and said, I don't know why you're telling my daughter she should be getting pregnant because we're getting all this stuff in the mail addressed to her about pregnancy things. And he was livid. And he came back about a week later and said, well, I owe you an apology. I had no idea what was going on in my house. Um, but uh, so, you know, there's a privacy issue there. I don't know. They don't say if the daughter was um, an adult daughter or a younger daughter or not. But, you know, there's a privacy issue there. They knew so much about his daughter. I presume she was hiding from him the fact she was pregnant. So, you know, there are some um, unintended consequences, shall we say, that we need to be thinking about. The other the other part of it is network analysis, because one of the ways that we really look at big data, when it, not just correlations about people are searching on these terms and that helps us know the flu has arrived, but we also look at relationships between the data pieces or between the people who are relaying the data, and that's a network analysis. Now, that's different than a social network. A social network is something we think about like Facebook. Network analysis is a scholarly way of looking at the relationships between what we call nodes. And nodes are the people or the information piece. And then ties are the connections between those. And it's a way to look at these relationships and gain some knowledge about how things work. Big data allows us to look at network, social networks. Social networks, where it is people, but using network analysis, so I know that's a confusing set of terms, um, to help us understand who's talking to who, where ideas may flow, and so it can be used in a way of understanding where ideas are um, moving through a group of people. Um, it can also be used for thinking about who's going to buy things in a recommender service kind of approach. And it can be used in ways to sort of understand strength of personal networks or strength of society. So one of the things they did is using a lot of data that they got from Amazon and seeing who was recommending who and which kind of networks, they started looking at what this group of people looked like. And they found that there was a, you know, a core group of everybody was connected, and then there's what we call outliers, and there are people who have connections to other core groups but not necessarily as deeply connected in the first group. And they found that... If you removed from the network, either they, because they saw what was happening with people, if people in the, uh, removed from the network, if people from the core group disappeared, the network all stayed together and was strong. But if people from the outside disappeared, the network collapsed because you needed those outside ideas and things flowing in. So there's some interesting things we can learn, but you know, uh, we need to be aware that this is the kinds of things that can be learned and what they're looking at. The next section that he talks about is datafication. 
and this kind of goes um, to your comments, Mary. How do we get everything to be data? And is an image data? So, you know, when you just scan a book and you have the image of the book, is that data? Well, I mean, it tells you something. But until you make it to where OCR can read it and read the individual words, it's digitized, but it's not datafied until you can get to the content in there. And people started thinking about, so what can we learn from these words? And, you know, they, the authors, and I love the way they say this, words are like fossils encased within pages instead of being in sedimentary rock. And they started to think about what can we learn from, from these words. And in doing this, they've looked for statistically significant words to find links among topics of books. So that's where they get the recommender service for Amazon. And I don't know how many of you um, use Amazon, but personally I am amazed how often they find a book I never heard of, but it is actually interesting. And Amazon started with a panel of human beings reviewing books and making recommendations and creating tables for recommendations. And they had one of their uh, scientists working on this words as fossils approach and making the ties between the different words. They had the two systems running at the same time, the people system and the recommender system that was from big data. And the recommender system outperformed in terms of when they were you know, learning from their users, whether they were interested in the recommendation or followed the recommendation or bought the recommendation. The recommender system, using words as fossils, so to speak, outperformed the human recommendation system. So in a sense, we were voting with our clicks that big data has a place in our lives and that there's a value to it for us. So, you know, that is a really important way to think about it as we let big data be part of how we are part of life for us. Where is datafication happening? And it's happening in a lot of... How many of you use WAVE for, for travel? A couple. So that's one where... You know, you turn on your phone, and then you're in the car, and you're driving, and it pings your phone and sees what's going on, and you can even you can put something in in terms of saying there's an accident or something, but otherwise it just checks how, you're, how fast you're going and where you're going, and then it aggregates all that, and somebody else using WAVE can look and say, ooh, everything's slowed down on Alcoa Highway. I think I'll take a Pellissippi and get around it. So that's, you know, datafication of GIS. That's datafication of geographic information. There's datafication also, if we think about it, of interactions. And that's, for example, most of you probably never thought about it, because I know um, I hadn't thought about it for quite some time, but if you use Twitter, you only have your you know, small number of characters that you can mess with, that you can say, but they collect like 32 different metadata statistics on uh, each tweet that you send out. And those metadata, which are data about the data, so it's describing your tweet, have everything from GIS to the kind of system you're using to all kinds of things that Twitter can then use to do analysis. When I first arrived, I had a great question about, you know, so, you know, how does this play into these companies? What are they doing? And, you know, frankly, Facebook, Twitter, many, many companies that we or our children or our friends interact with on a regular basis are not in the business of helping us communicate with our friends or, you know, have a social presence online. Um, they're actually in the data collection business. And they sell that data to other people or they do analysis to sell insights. And it's really interesting because when I go over and I speak in the EU, 
the citizens in the EU are very, very concerned about their personal privacy. There's a law in the EU that companies have to reveal what they've collected about individual citizens. And I spoke to someone there who um, was very concerned about what Facebook was learning about them and compelled Facebook to release all the data that they had collected about this person. And this person hadn't been online all that long. It was like a year and a half, two years. And literally, the stack of, she showed me a picture, the stack of information when she printed it all out was like to here. It was huge. So they're in the business of selling data. And that goes to another point that's in the book, which I think is really interesting, is that there's three different kinds of companies that when you're thinking about when you're dealing with big data. There's the data holder, so something like Facebook or any healthcare holds a lot of data. Federal government holds a lot of data. So they're data holders and they're data owners. And then there's data specialists, and these are the people who know how to interrogate and work with the data, analyze it, etc. And one thing that's not in the book, but from personal experience, you know, data takes a lot of care. So you also have data specialist companies that uh, manage the data through the data life cycle in terms of you have to preserve it, you have to make sure it's well described so that people can find it if they're going beyond just a keyword um, just kind of search. Um, and then there are what he calls, and I really like how he thinks about this, there are the uh, people who are think about data. They, they have the mindset for data. And these are the people who have gotten away from thinking in hypotheses. These are the people who are thinking, what can the data reveal to me? Let the data speak. And they think of all these different ways to use data. And that is a fundamental change, because in the past, we've always thought data is collected and it's for its primary use. It's to help us get customers and send things out to customers and, you know, make sure they get the right coupons, or it's to help us know what the temperature should be in Knoxville and Maryville, et cetera. These folks, the ones who have the data mindset, are thinking about new ways to use the data and beyond the primary use. So they're thinking about future use, reuse of the data. And in academe, this isn't in the book, but I will tell you this is a real problem because academe, the coin of the realm, has traditionally been collecting new data and doing new things. But we are gradually, as academics, coming to accept the idea that reusing data is an important component, too. If it's already collected, there's new ways to use the data and think about the data. And that's been a really hard switch for academe. Um, recombining the data, taking different data and putting it together in new ways, so you're pulling on multiple databases or data sets of different kinds. Um, extensible, thinking about the data in new ways that it can be used. Um, and the fact that Data doesn't, may not last forever. We have to think about that data has a li- may have a lifetime. There may be depreciation of data over time. So data about me when I was 30 may not be as valuable now that I'm 50. Uh, <laughs> so we need to be thinking about that. And then there is also this whole concern with open data, which is data that should be available for everyone to use. So, for example... Data-holding companies like Twitter sell their data. So when I have students, and I've had several students do dissertation work using Twitter data to explore ideas, they have to either capture it directly at the period of time, uh, over time, and scrape it off the web and you know, write a script to do so, or if they want to go back and get it, they have to pay for it. And um, needless to say, we all know graduate students are not rich, and that can get pretty pricey. 
Open data is that data should be available without a price. And our federal government is very, very serious about open data uh, because they think it's also important for open government. And so, for example, all work that has been federally funded, the data has to be made available, not immediately, but, you know, within several years. And different agencies have different time frames. And places like the U.S. Geological Survey, they do things that their scientists who are working for USGS have to clean their data sets and make their data sets available to the public, which has really been great because it drives innovation. There's been startup companies that say, these data sets are available to us. We're going to uh, create apps and things. So there's things for agriculture and uh, for business that have been built utilizing this open data. So that is a very, very powerful part. But the mindset, you know, I talked about the three kinds of data companies, the holders, the specialists, and the mindset. The mindset folks are the ones who are looking at how to think about data in these new value terms and how to build things with these new value terms. Going back to where I started about that, we do have to think about the risks, too. We really can't talk about big data without thinking about the risks. I have visited the Berlin Wall since it fell, and I have visited the DMZ, which is still there, and it makes you think a lot about freedom and how fortunate we are to have it and how on the other side of those walls how things were controlled. And a large part of that was information control. And big data is collecting a lot of information all about us. So as the authors point out, we really do need to think about privacy and freedom and safeguards for this, to be able to get the value from big data for good things like health. And, I mean, I'd lie if I don't say I love Amazon. I mean, I just shopped at Amazon this weekend. So, I mean, there are some, you know, there are good things that come out of big data. But we need to think about the risks that come with it and how we might protect ourselves. So, for example, with privacy, making sure that companies, when they de-identify data, really do and they do it thoroughly enough. There's been some studies where, and he talks about them in here, where they have gone to de-identified data, and then if it's not sufficiently de-identified, you can go back and find the individual if you combine enough data sets to do it. We also need to think about, I don't know if anybody's seen the movie, Minority Report, but the whole concept of probability and punishment, that we are with big data, a lot of um, law enforcement agencies are using it very, very well to predict where, problems might be and to deploy understaffed law enforcement agencies to make sure that they best utilize and best serve their people by making sure they've got people in the right place. That's great. We just want to make sure we don't end up in a minority report world where because a probability exists that this event was going to happen, whoever's there is assumed to be about to do that event. And yes, you know, that's kind of taking it way into the future, but these authors do a really good job of, of setting up a way to, to be thinking about it so we don't have Oppenheimer's regret. And the, the other part is fallible data. We have to remember that when we do big data, and it's, we're getting all these great data sets and, um, you know, these terrific predictive models that data is fallible, we may have a problem where the whole problem is the whole we didn't collect. And that makes us think one way. Or we may have a problem that the data is dirty and that it wasn't properly collected. It was collected, but it wasn't properly collected, so it isn't actually accurate. And otherwise, what kind of happens is people kind of play to the data gods and say, well, because it's big data and that's what it says, that's what it is. And that is something we have to guard against as well. And the way to do that, um, the authors project 
thinking about accountability, you know, who is responsible in the different places, making sure we always put people before prediction, and remember the human element, which is why there's no slideshow here, thinking about traceability, knowing where the data came from, how it was collected, how it was perceived. In my world, we call that provenance tracking because we always want to know if we're looking at a new data set, where did it come from, how did it get there? Thinking about the new workforce, which may have a lot of people who build algorithms and how they will do that. And thinking about that we do have to have policies around data, which we're starting to have in this country. We have quite well in the EU in terms of privacy and data, and it's something to consider. And I'd like to stop there because I'm want to give everybody time for questions or comments. Yes. Uh, This week I read the article in Time about Tim Cook and his concern and how the different uh, computer companies came alongside him in their concern in terms of resisting the FBI being able to open the iPhones and so forth. Would you care to comment on that? And and included in that was Apple's attitude, which is different from Google and Facebook and others in terms of how it seeks to safeguard data. We live in an open, sunshine state. Um, Everything that I do, any of you could put in a request and get my email, and hopefully nothing too embarrassing in there. But... So I am someone who falls on the side of openness because I believe that openness is important. Now, with that said, I also do a lot of work at Y-12 National Security Complex, which is sort of a lot of stuff that goes on there can't be open. So I understand there's a huge tension between the two. And I know I sound like, um, you know, not really giving you an answer, but my answer on this would be we always have to balance social good against privacy. And I think each case is an individual case to be taken and considered individually. On that particular issue, I don't know enough about the technical um, side of it to know where things fall. Certainly, the hackers have been ahead of the companies for years. We have data breaches from Target. We have card readers being tapped. So there's all kinds of data breaches that are going on. I understand that we also, um, as a country, have always kept a difference between governance and business. So I think it really comes down to the level of threat um, and the level of good that would be achieved by doing it. And I don't know enough about that particular situation, but I will tell you, I love this country, and threat scares me. But there is also a threat if we lose our personal freedom and privacy because that is a good part of why we are what we are. So I know that's a kind of a wishy-washy answer, but without all the facts, that's probably the best answer I can give. Oh, they're fighting over the microphone. Yay. Okay, so um, we are in a political season right now, and it seems to me that the tradition of polls, of figuring out how things are going to work, is very much your old sample. You've got all the problems of age skew and who's really a a voter and uh, who has a landline and who doesn't. So all the problems with that data collection, it seems like big data would be a perfect uh, application for political predictions. Do you know if anybody's doing that? Yeah, in the U.K., <clears throat> the betting pools uh, all use, yeah, they use a big data approach to predict who's going to win and which areas they're going to be in. And it worked very well in Scotland. And there's also some... Um, Some think tanks here are doing something similar, and that kind of explains 
two, um, some of the predictions, both when Romney ran and Obama the first time, when the didn't turn out exactly how traditional polling had expected it to, um, the folks who were using more of a big data approach came much closer. And so they're looking at different kinds of threads in terms of searches and um, downloads and things like that. Actually, that was a big plot element in House of Cards, where the opponent was tracking searches on some kind of big data set called Alapalooza and or something like that. And the, it was it was a kind of a Google stand-in. Yeah, <laughs> and then the evil Frank Underwood character to respond to that, he started tracking it because he was president using the NSA. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. Um, let's see. I have so many responses to this. the The thing about tracking data correlations versus causality. It seems to me it sort of contributes to a kind of know-nothingness and, and being okay with know-nothingness. Then you know, beyond that... <laughs> well, let me answer that sure. first, if you don't mind. Because I work in Earth observation sciences, I'm all about observation. And to me, you, thinking about data as correlation is just an obs- uh, making an observation. observation. And I don't really think that's a know-nothingness. I think that's a way of having your eyes open to look to almost see in fourth dimension, in a sense. That's I would my think take that if there were people on the front end deciding what what data might be useful to collect and how to collect that data rather than just using whatever data sets kind of fall into their lap. And I, I assume there are people that are doing that too because that's sort of based more on the hypothesis outlook, I would think. But just the correlation thing, it just seems like there's so many dangers. Like really, in a way, it's like, large-scale profiling, you know, in some ways, or it could be seen that way in certain ways. He talks about how, it, you know, obviously there's 200 amazing pages here, and I couldn't touch on anything, and he does talk about how this relates to profiling, and it, it is, in a sense, you know, profiling on steroids, which is why we need to be thinking about, you know, control as well. And um, the encryption thing, I could see how someone could see that as resistance to becoming a data point. I mean, I think there's really no resistance totally to becoming a data point. Well, you know, there's there's the deep web, and that's resistance to being a data point, but there's also been a huge amount of socially unacceptable and socially damaging activity that's happened on the deep web. So, you know, it's it's a trade-off. Right, it's a trade-off, yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. No, I mean, I, I thank you for your comments. It's great. Dark web, yeah. John Phillips, I'm an IT uh, information management consultant. Uh, let me state uh, regarding the Apple thing, there is a legal issue that is it's not just the balancing of encryption versus freedom. Apple is put in the position of decompiling their software and working for the FBI to create something they never wanted to create in the first place, which was a backdoor to their software. Now, you can argue pros and cons about that, but they were very concerned about being put in a position of working to do that when they never wanted to do that in the first place, and it actually affected the marketability of their product. So uh, my question is... <clears throat> Thank you. And I found the, uh, your correlation versus causality to be relevant to this uh, issue that I come up with as a consultant with corporations, and that is uh-huh. that as I, in IT consulting, usually you do what's called a requirements analysis. Mm-hmm. There is an assumption, and that's kind of the causality, that you're going to get an ROI, return on investment, for a benefit. What I see a lot of corporations do 
is make an assumption that if they buy this big data software, they're going to find something out that they don't know now. And it's very nebulous. And you're looking at millions of dollars in software <clears throat> under the assumption that you'll get some kind of insights into your markets or something else. And I was wondering what you, if you see a uh, some more of a predictability thing about what you're going to get in the terms of, in terms of ROI from from big data analysis, because a lot of the organizations are made, are just assuming they're going to get something from it, and I don't think they actually know what that's going to be. I think that's an awesome comment. You're talking about that they have the two of the three components of a companies that they talked about. They have data holding and they have data specialties, so they can hold it and they can work it. But if unless a company has the person with the data mindset, understanding what they can be looking for or what they're looking for, you're right. They're going to be spinning their wheels in a whole lot of data and getting no new value out of it. So that third component, the data mindset person, is incredibly important. And um, going beyond the book, I would posit that that is probably the resource that is most lacking in the, in the workforce now, is thinking about what are you looking for. And it's a little bit, I can go back to observational science, we can have all kinds of great instrumentation on stream throws or you know, carbon flux towers or whatever, but if we don't know why we're looking for it or what we're looking for, it doesn't do us any good. It's just a bunch of numbers. So you need to have that data mindset person. And I would say that has to be somebody who has a broad view of, for that market, what they're trying to accomplish and what they're doing, and, but with the freedom to be thinking about how to spin it off into something new um, that still fits within the product line, so to speak, you know, not used in a tight term of product line, but broadly speaking, because to fit a lot of companies, um, of how it might fit. And, you know, that's where there's a problem. Okay, I had another uh, question about what you think about the privacy issue, because um, especially the, the difference between the European environment and where privacy is more of a, of a mandated issue than in the American environment, because this is, would almost put you into, as I've seen in the corporate world, where they have records retention requirements for Europe and they have records retention requirements for the U.S., they actually have two separate systems. Uh, they can't integrate the data exchanges between the two systems. And because of the concerns of privacy, I think this is going to become more and more of a problem because people are more and more concerned about privacy and, and the safeguard of their information. I'm one of the people, for instance, that used to have a security clearance at Oak Ridge, and I got the letter from the OPM, Office of Personnel Management, saying, your data got compromised. Mm -hmm. And if the Office of Personnel Management can't protect your data, who can? So the, the issue of privacy, especially as it's becoming more and more analyzed by big data software, is going to become more and more of an issue. And I don't see how we can, how we can integrate the policies and the, the political perspectives between Europe and America where you have two completely different sets of sens sensibilities toward privacy. You make a great point. I think one thing we need here is we don't have really sufficient policy. The policy hasn't caught up with the Internet and the power of the tools we have, number one. And number two, I think we need better education because, like, kids give away an awful lot online and have no clue what that can mean and what they're doing. But, yeah, I mean, that's, it's an, that's an area that hasn't been addressed well. I agree. <clears throat> Seems like... Um Big data has uh, an objective to uh, predict the future. 
And um, with that, the individuals that are out here that kind of like a surprise might be disappointed. <laughs> is, is big data in danger of getting in its own way because people are basically spontaneous and they like to do things that bring joy, and sometimes that looks like a little bit of a surprise rather than know who's going to win the chess game and just say, let's start over, this one's done. You know, and I think that's a really good question, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion outside my area, but I'd love to follow about AI. And I kind of go back to, I'm a Star Trek fan, and go back to uh, one time when Data was playing somebody and they ended up, beating him because he was playing logically and they broke the rules and you know that was a common Star Trek theme that the machines get beaten by the fact that we are unpredictable and we see things differently. I think that goes to what he talks about making sure that we don't get so inured by the cult of data that we forget real life and I think that's really really important although I work in data and I think data is incredibly valuable I think we always have to keep the, the human perspective on it as well, and try to think about how to use it for social good. I think that's a really key point. And let's all think about that. That's big data getting its own way, and how can that be a good thing, too? Um, so thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it, and all the great comments. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Allard. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.